The Guardian. Rebecca Brooks was talking to somebody and that person said to Rebecca, how's this phone hacking thing going to end? And she said, with Alan Rusbridger on his knees begging for mercy. If they could have done, they would have shut down The Guardian. I'm Dan Sabat, and you're listening to Media Talk on the phone hacking scandal that's engulfed News International. After an extraordinary week, we consider the future for the Murdoch Empire. Is the closure of the news of the world just the beginning of the end? What are the implications for David Cameron? And what change will newspapers face as pressure mounts a major reform? In the studio, we have The Guardian's editor-in-chief, Alan Rusbridger, and apparently a media show first-timer, at least in the studio. Janine Gibson, a pod regular, a media watcher, and soon-to-be editor of The Guardian USA, my goodness. And down the line, we're joined by media commentator and former tabloid editor Roy Greenslade, and by Nick Davis, The Guardian reporter who broke the phone hacking story. Nick, if I can, I'd like to start with you. You know, Two years ago, when you were sort of first writing about the extent of News International's phone hacking, did you have any idea that, that it could lead to the revelations we saw this week, that victims of crime were being targeted by the newspaper in such a systematic way? I think that I did know the full extent to which this newspaper was breaking the law, primarily because, always in the background of this story, there's been a number of journalists who worked for the News of the World, who really, really didn't like what they were expected to do, and who've been a kind of guide as to the true picture. The problem has always been that it's not enough with this story to know what's true, you have to be able to prove every single syllable of it. And if you don't, News International leap in and deny it. So it's been a struggle, really, to prove the truth of what we always knew. Did you think you, you could get to the point where it, had, you know, where it dominated the national debate in this way? I mean, what was your sense of how the story was going to develop when you were first writing about this back in 2009? I think it was always a story that had a lot of implications. It was never just a story about journalists behaving badly, because from the outset, first of all, there was this fluke fact that the guy who had been editing the paper when a lot of this was going on happened to have uh, cropped up in the uh, office of David Cameron, who was then clearly on his way to becoming prime minister. So that elevated the importance of the story immediately. Plus, it was clear from the outset that the Metropolitan Police had absolutely failed to get to the bottom of it, so that their reputation and behaviour was also at stake, and ditto in respect of the Press Complaints Commission. So it was always a story that carried lots of implication with it. But I mean, for example, I never ever, right up until yesterday afternoon, never ever did I dream that the news of the world would close. And that still seems to me just absolutely shocking and amazing that they've done that. And I think it's fair to say I didn't see it taking off to quite this level of controversy. What got you started on the story in the first place? What was the moment where you thought, I need to investigate this seriously, I need to talk to Alan about this? A sequence of three quick things. First, when the original trial of of Glenn Malcair and Clive Goodman happened in January 07, a, a blind man in a dark room could see that the official version of events didn't make sense. There was this private investigator hacking the phones of eight people. For who? Well, what, for some kind of strange hobby? So it never did make sense. The second thing was that a very good person called me out of the blue and said, you need to pursue this because, and gave me an outline of of what that story was. And that person has remained a key source all the way through. And the third thing was that by sheer chance, while I was following up on that lead, I was at some posh social event and found myself sitting next to somebody very senior from the Metropolitan Police. So in a kind of highly casual, relaxed kind of way, I said, you know that phone hacking story? They said eight victims in court. How many victims do you think there were? Oh, says the senior guy from the Met, there were thousands. 
Well, that was quite encouraging. Quite encouraging or quite disturbing, I think. <laughs> you know, what's your best sense of, of how, how this story develops? Are there more hacking revelations of the Millie Dowler kind to come, do you believe? Is there, you know, is there much more on this story to emerge in the next few weeks? Yes, you, you can see the story possibly developing in at least three different ways. One, we'll hear about more victims who are significant in one way or another. Two, we will hear about more illegal techniques. I think there's a lot more to come out about using uh, Trojan emails to hack into people's computers, possibly a bit about burglary, possibly a bit about the tapping of live phone calls. And then finally, what may happen is that it may spill over into revelations about other newspapers because it's perfectly clear. I think all Fleet Street journalists know that the news of the world may have been particularly keen on this kind of stuff, but they absolutely weren't on their own in doing it. Uh, Roy, that's, I think, a good point to bring you in. You know, Roy, was this happening at the, you know, at the Mirror when you were involved in it? Was, was this happening at, you know, do you think this is happening broadly at other newspapers? Do you think this is a Fleet Street-wide issue or is this really a news of the world issue? It certainly didn't happen at the Mirror. It was an era before mobile phones. But I don't think that journalists 20 years ago on the average tabloid were getting up to any... They might have been dodgy and sometimes moved into grey areas, but they didn't involve themselves in illegality. Is this a crisis for Fleet Street or a crisis just for sort of half of Fleet Street? Are there other people who come out of this sort of newspapers or people who come out of this saga with credit? Well, I mean, the cleanest hands must be the Guardians because they've obviously exposed the story. I think the Independent have been a sort of good adjunct. Um, and, and most journalists are not involved in this kind of thing. But what's been awful to watch is the failure of other newspapers to take up this story when The Guardian showed the lead. They've all weighed in now and this week, but for years they didn't treat it seriously enough, restrained by what we call the Old Boys Act in Fleet Street. Ginny, what have we learned from this crisis so far? I mean, have, have we learned that, that, that Fleet Street is a rather sort of mucky and awful place and journalists are as bad as the general public think they are? I think what's very interesting about the last couple of weeks as opposed to the last two years is it's revealed that for the majority of the time that Nick's been reporting this story, most people have been staggeringly unsurprised, I think, by the revelations. And you can see that only when the moment of true shock kicks in. The Millie Dowler and the other victims of crime um, uh, being hacked coming out and it's that sort of level of cynicism around the celebrities politicians oh well this is what you have to expect and this is how the world works that's probably the most disappointing thing and the thing that probably needs to be corrected most the other thing you've learned is that a big powerful news organization or media organization will stop at nothing to cover up bad practice and the tentacles of um, influence mean that they'll get an awful lot of support doing it. The cover-up was pretty damaging for them. I mean, you know, when, when the original story was written in 2009, they were saying that The Guardian was misleading, misleading them. I mean, that's a pretty... Well, in, in many ways, the cover-up is the most damaging thing and certainly the most uh, far-reaching thing. That's, that's why you have the Prime Minister standing up this morning and talking about a uh, culture in which we are all to blame of, of complicity between the press and politicians and you know, big business and everybody else. And that's why these questions of the future of media regulation are coming up. That's why there's a sort of root and branch review having, having to be planned. And Alan, do you think the closure of the news of the world is a sort of proportionate response to these phone hacking allegations? I mean, you know, is this what the Guardian set out to achieve with its reporting on this no, saga? No, of course not. Uh, I, I find it completely perverse. The, the only thing that could possibly make sense of it is if News International insiders know that there's a ton more dirt coming down the slipway. 
So they could just think, look, we know over the next few weeks we're going to be exposed to this, this and this stories and no brand can survive the kind of toxic damage that has been done to it. I mean, it might might be their judgment that that's happened so far, but I, I don't think anyone else su- suspected that the news of the world had to be closed down. So that makes you think that, that, that something else is going on, that, that, that either it's part of a sort of you know, cynical commercial exercise in which they can do a seven-day operation cheaper. That, that, I mean, that would, that would be so brutal, uh, but I, I can't believe that that's true. Or, or that people are just desperately trying to save skins and that the newspapers had to pay the price in order to save skins. Just on the reporting of the story the last couple of years, did you come under any pressure to sort of drop sort of drop the phone hacking story to lay off by others in Fleet Street? Was there a sense that this the, the, the Guardian's investigations area were unwelcome? I mean, I was I was told from time to time this was not helpful to Fleet Street and that this was this was bad for everyone. But I mean, my my point, which I made very forcefully when I when I resigned from the PCC Code Committee in November two thousand and nine, was that the only thing that was going to damage Fleet Street was the failure to take this seriously. We wrote very clearly in November 19, 2009 that the laughable report that the PCC came out with then, which was a total bucket of whitewash, which they've now withdrawn, was going to cause immense damage to the cause of self-regulation. So if the PCC had acted in 2009, and if instead of denying the Guardian story and going on the attack, James Murdoch and Rebecca Brooks had taken it seriously, then I think the news of the world would still be alive. Can I just follow on from Alan there? Because I received lots and lots of private assurances from people I would generally regard within News International as being, if not friends, certainly people I thought of reasonable standing, who assured me that there's nothing to the hacking story, that Nick Davis was an obsessive, uh, it, was, uh, it was merely a small number of people, and they still appear to be in denial. When I listened to James Murdoch speaking last night, he was talking about uh, a sort of group of people uh, that have now departed from the paper, overlooking, by the way, that he was still defending Rebecca Brooks, who was there. And so they're now st- still appearing to seal it off to a relatively small group in order to deny that, in fact, it went much wider than that. And at the same time, they talk about a cleaned up news of the world under the current regime. This was a news of the world that intruded into the privacy of Max Mosley. This was a news of the world that entrapped the snooker player John Higgins. It hasn't cleaned up. Uh, and I think that they recognise that fact in a sense. They would never admit it publicly. And it's one of the reasons that I think they've closed it down. I think that's right. And I think there was a schism in News International. I think there were people saying this is cancerous to the core, but they just would never say it publicly. And if I can take my career in my hands and disagree with the editor, I think the closure of the News of the World is that brutal. I don't think it was planned. I don't think there was a secret document in a safe going, right, this is the emergency action plan for closing the news of the world and making a seven-day sun because they don't work like that. But the Murdoch's ability to be ruthlessly opportunistic in the face of a disaster should never be underestimated. And they never act with just one motivation. Roy, it looked like a sort of pretty sort of bizarre sort of crisis management strategy. What, what do you, you know, is there any smarts to it? Why do they do it? Uh, well, I think the problem with cover-ups is that once you set out to cover something up, you fall into that trap of thinking, um, well, we've contained it enough now, 
um, a new revelation, well, we'll contain it at that, and so on. In a way, they fell foul of the fact that Nick Davis just continued and continued plugging away. And each new revelation, they tried desperately to find a new way of sealing it off. And there have been various dramatic moments, most famously when Murdoch flew in from the States to deal with it, set up a contingency fund. We'll sort this out simply by paying people off, and they thought that was good enough. And I think the other problem they faced was that once one had persuaded the Met to reinvestigate, all the time they were on the back foot because the Metropolitan Police and various lawyers then were in possession of the facts the famous documents in mm. Mulcair's documents, and News International could not have access to them and had to react on every occasion. And that put them in a hopeless position, really. I'm not mm-hmm. saying mm. I'm sorry about that, but that's exactly what happened. OK, let's just push on a bit. Alan, what did you make of James Murdoch's sort of statement of apology of yesterday? I mean, they finally seemed to be getting to grips with this issue, didn't they, and acknowledging the errors in some of the things we we're writing about? Well, the good thing is that they finally admitted uh, all the things that The Guardian wrote about in July 2009, and he was very frank. They had said untrue things to the police, to Parliament, to public, and to the regulator. Uh, when you say apology, actually, if you read it carefully, there wasn't much of an apology there. He said it was a mistake of him to have uh, paid off uh, Gordon Taylor uh, of the Professional Footballers Association. Uh, he said that he, uh, on an interview he'd done that on legal advice. So I think that's throwing the, the lawyers to the, the wolves. Uh, and he said it was a matter of regret. I mean, it was a, a staggeringly comprehensive admission of failure. But in any other company, that would have been a letter of resignation. Nick, what are the issues that Rebecca Brooks and James Murdoch have to face? Is there any prospect of them being charged? News International are trying to present a picture in which all the bad things happened back along before Colin Myler became editor. One of the reasons that that PR picture fails, and why I I guess they made this drastic decision to close the newspaper, is it just isn't true. So we know, for example, although we're holding back details, that the police are planning to arrest two very senior people who were working on the News of the World very recently. They have left, but they are well established as people working there with Colin Myler at a senior level. Furthermore, if you look at the people who they have already arrested, they've arrested Colin Myler's news editor, Ian Edmondson. They've arrested Colin Myler's chief reporter, Neville Thurlbeck. They've arrested Colin Myler's chief showbiz writer, uh, Jimmy Weatherup. These are all Myler people. And furthermore, we know that for the last 15 months, Colin Myler's show business writer, Dan Evans, has been suspended because his phone was used to access a public figure's voicemail. We should add that he says that that happened because the keys got stuck twice. <laughs> but there it is. These are Myler people. These are current people. It's not in the past. And th- that's the problem that they've got and that they know about. They know the police are rounding up these people. There's every chance that they will charge some of them. Sometime next spring, there are going to be criminal trials at which this contemporary angle on it is going to become clear. Okay, I get that. What about Rebecca Brooks, though? What about James Murdoch? Will will, will they be charged? Will will this scandal lap up and catch them out finally? I, I suspect that James Murdoch won't be charged because as far as we know... What he is guilty of is a moral failing rather than a legal one. That is to say, he paid out hundreds of thousands of pounds to stifle legal actions 
where he was presented with very clear evidence of criminal activity by reporters on the paper of which the police and the public were not aware. That's a moral failing, but it isn't against the law to buy people's silence. Where Rebecca is concerned, it is extremely difficult to believe her claim that she didn't know that any of this was going on. But it's a question of proof. And as I understand it, Scotland Yard have her in their sights, but are not yet in a position to arrest her, and it's possible that they never will be. She has a certain kind of luck, Rebecca, that she leaves places at at the right time. And she was there in the period 2000 to 2003, And most of Mulcair's records, although he was active during that period, the records which have survived deal with the following period when Andy Coulson was in the editor's chair, which is why he got nicked this morning. Janine, do you think Rebecca Brooks can survive now, particularly after what David Cameron said about her this morning? No, um, I I don't think it's been possible for Rebecca Brooks to survive for for some months, I suspect. On some level, that deal deal was done um, a while ago. But the question is how long they can keep her there as the focus for the public opprobrium and, and uh, general sense of fury, because she is the sort of last, last line of defence before, before James Murdoch. The question of who gets charged is really important because we've got a sort of buy on the, um, on the merger until September due to the volume of, um, of complaints. And although if you take a step back, it just seems kind of inconceivable that this merger could go ahead or purchase, there isn't actually uh, very much you can do within our sort of legal framework or regulatory framework to stop it. And pretty much the only the only uh, hurdle left or the only possible hurdle left is, is an investigation by Ofcom into whether News International are fit and proper people to own a broadcast. It's just ridiculous to even say it. But, uh, and it can only really be triggered if, um, if a board director is is charged mm-hmm. so in a sense i mean nick's assessment is, is is quite sort of um urgent they've got till september to find some way of charging somebody or else this and thing's going to go through. they're two separate companies news international and peace guy be different companies and the, the common bridge is james murdoch which is why it's essential to them i imagine that you have a firewall underneath james murdoch uh, to prevent the fire spreading right up to the top Roy, how damaged is James Murdoch by all this? Uh, could you see a scenario where he's charged or at least sort of hold below the waterline to make his you know, eventual succession at News Corp difficult? Well, I don't think he'll be charged. I take uh, Nick's point on that. I think the problem comes from in the United States where the, the governance rules for companies are uh, far tighter. And uh, if, he is, uh, if mud sticks to him in any way, uh, then he'll find it very difficult in terms of the succession. Like Nick, I don't think that it'll actually even reach up in terms of being charged to Rebecca Books. But she must go. She is, at the moment, just a human shield for James Murdoch. And the fact that virtually everyone, the staff, other journalists, the chair of the Press Complaints Commission, the prime minister, the Labour leader, all of us are saying that she should stand down, uh, means that she can't last for very long. So he's going to lose his shield pretty quickly. Okay. Before we turn our attention to look at the effects of the phone hacking scandal on the wider press and and regulatory form, let's also take a look at David Cameron and indeed Andy Coulson's position uh, arrested this morning. Uh, Alan, you saw uh, David Cameron's remarks in his emergency press conference this morning. What did you think of that? Did you think he was credible in in, in his justification for employing Coulson? And, 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 And indeed, how much damage will this now do to him? Well, he looks. I mean, it's a. It was a terrible decision at the time, and uh, it, you know, I, I wasn't the only one in Fleet Street who tried to warn or send warnings uh, 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 about it. 
one wonders what on earth the vetting procedure was. If you go back into the Guardian's archives and look up a couple of pieces by Graham McLagan, the BBC crime correspondent in 2002, which had verbatim transcripts of this other investigator, Jonathan Rees, talking to Alex Maranchak of the News of the World and discussing payments, uh, bribing policemen. I mean, all this was on the record. So if there was any vetting, it was very cursory. So I think it looks like a, a, a... terrible uh, error of judgment uh, you know I mean Cameron said he took responsibility for for it but he, he didn't seem to be able to go beyond that so I think the heat will be on him for a while. Now, now let's be clear about this you said Alan that uh, you warned um, Cameron and I think Nick Clegg also before the election about Andy Colston's record uh, number 10 seemed to be sort of rebuffing that denying that well, and saying they, they didn't hear that so what what actually occurred? All, all what, they said was they, they, they didn't have specific information but um I mean, it was just at a period when this man, Jonathan Rees, was on charge for murder. Uh, Jonathan Rees, just to remind people, was the uh, private investigator, uh, I mean, a much nastier piece of work than Glenn Malker, uh, who had just come out of prison in 2005, having done seven years for fitting up a a woman with uh, cocaine uh, in order to discredit her at a time when he was under monitoring by the police for paying police and having corrupt relations to do with the news of the world. So all this all this was known, but no Fleet Street paper could write about it. I thought it was right to try and tell Cameron, via a very senior aide, uh, that this was would be coming down the slipway in case he was thinking of taking him into number 10. W- was that passed on to I'm Cameron? I'm told it was. So, in other words, they're not telling the number 10, they're telling Fibs? Well, it, yeah, I mean, he... He first of all, he said, "I didn't have any specific actionable information," mm-hmm. which is a, uh, a clever way of putting it. And then he, he uh, pressed. He said, "I didn't have any specific information, but I don't, I don't think they're denying that they uh, they had information." The Prime Minister today sort of talk, seemed to be talking about kind of I don't know a new relationship between politicians and the press, a sort of I don't know a greater distance, if you like. Uh, do you think that was that was credible, or, or is that just something he needs to say to get past today, really? Well, it's the latter, isn't it? I mean, he, he, he needs suddenly to distance himself from an organization that he's been cozying up to for several years. Um, and the same would be true, by the way, of Labour. Um, they're all suddenly um, wanting to distance themselves from Rupert Murdoch. Uh, and that's a rather belated state of affairs. They know uh, that at the moment, he himself, for the first time ever, is toxic. I've often said that um, Rupert Murdoch's not really that much of a demon figure in Britain. Really? Um, he's, not, he's not regarded in the same way as many other um, tycoons of the past in the, in the press, like Robert Maxwell, for instance. But now, suddenly, in the last week, there's been this transformative moment where people now are talking about Murdoch, the Murdoch media, and so on, in such a way that it suddenly caught the public imagination. And he has been demonized. And I think suddenly politicians realize, because they're desperate, of course, to please the public gallery, uh, that they don't be seen to be near him any longer. It's, it's, it, I tell you, he's lost his political power. The reverse is also true, that he's become... I mean, this is a real Wizard of Oz moment, isn't it? I mean, there has been this immense force in public life, and you, you've seen the fear of the police, the fear of Parliament... Even Cameron today uh, you know, said we, we've all been too close because we needed him. I mean, and now suddenly there's, the dam is broken and people are no longer frightened. I thought Cameron seemed terrified this morning. 
And it reminded me, because I'm very old and have written about the media for a long time, of when he used to be the press officer for Michael Green at Carlton. And I thought, there's a man who is used to transmitting the instructions of media moguls and in many ways moved from one to another and now there's no one. Who 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 is behind? Do you think Cameron went far enough with his sort of announcement of, I think, now two inquiries into the press, one into hacking and another one into sort of regulation? I mean, is that useful? Is that necessary? The inquiry into regulation, you have to you have to do that. And you can't have a situation where the uh, chairwoman of the PCC stands up and says, well, that that report we published, that, that was um, untrue because they lied to us and there wasn't much we could do about it. That's just such a terrible admission of defeat. You can't sort of let that and let that continue. The problem for regulation is this tenet that we've clung to for 50 years, and, and Roy knows this better than I do, of, of self-regulation being the only way to regulate the press, it is fatally undermined. You've got a situation where a generation of newspaper proprietors or, or, or very powerful editors held so much power concentrated between them that they were able to operate a club where on a nod and a wink they decided what was acceptable or not. And that the, the, the regulator was powerless to intervene because the club was their paymasters. So I, I you know, I, I do at this point look at the future for press regulation and wonder if there are, you know, that there might be worse things than state statutory regulation, particularly if you could form some sort of elected head of an independently licensed regulatory body. That might that might be a better way. Gosh, that sounds quite dangerous. Do you think we need statutory regulation, Alan? I'm not sure well, you're so not. I think I think we escaped it in the eighteenth century and uh, and I think it's it's difficult to imagine going back to it, if only because you say, Well what is Guido Fawkes? What is Huffington Post? Are we going to try and have them regulated? Uh, in which case, you're going to have to have kind of licenses that you can grant or withdraw. So, who is a journalist? Who isn't a journalist? And I think that gets back to sort of state state control of journalists or state authorization of journalists, which I think is very problematical. I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to see the arguments, but at the moment, I I can't see it, except in a form of co-regulation. So, I, I think people have floated in the past that you could put the PCC under the auspices of Ofcom and Ofcom could judge whether the PCC was doing a decent job or not and I think if if that had been if something like that had been there in the last couple of years uh, and the Guardian could have appealed to Ofcom and said look here's this hopeless report so i.e. there's somebody to keep the PCC accountable rather than just simply the press proprietors. The point of regulation is to sit between um, the public and the industry, not between um, the proprietors or the, or the politicians. In a world where you can find out what the public wants really, really quickly and easily via Facebook, Twitter or YouGov polling or, 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 or many manifold other ways, it ought to be possible to have a much more reactive and uh, sensitive regulatory body that is able to maintain standards and sense of how the public wants its press to be governed without being controlled by politicians. We should just remind ourselves that it wasn't that long ago that David Cameron was calling for Ofcom to be abolished, Mm -hmm. which was the News International line at the time. Nick, do you feel sorry for Andy Coulson? That's a very difficult question to answer. I think I, I feel very sorry for the junior reporters who are being caught out and who've lost their jobs because, you know, it's blaming the foot soldiers for doing what the generals told them to do. And I do recall an incident which Alan may or may not remember after we published the first story in 2009 when Coulson's close friend Rebecca Brooks was talking to somebody and that person said to Rebecca, how's this phone hacking thing going to end? And she said, with Alan Rusbridger on his knees begging for mercy. 
and they would have destroyed us. They would have put Alan out of his job. They would have put my, me out of my job. If they could have done, they would have shut down the Guardian. And these are very, very destructive, ruthless people. You remember that uh, famous quote from the assistant editor of the News of the World, Greg Miskew. This is what we do. We go out and destroy people's lives. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if I catch myself feeling sorry for the likes of Andy Coulson, I remember that ruthlessness and try and check my feelings. Is this genuinely a sort of fundamental sort of rupture, a fundamental sort of moment in sort of British print journalism? Or is it a bit like sort of after, after Diana, everyone was very upset about the use of paparazzis for about a fortnight and then carried on buying tabloids with greater vigour? Is this one of these things that will just pass, in other words? No, no. The closure of a newspaper and the, and the humbling of the biggest uh, commercial media operation in, in Britain? No, this is... This is very, very different on a totally different scale. No, and there's so much more to come over the last, over the next 18 months yet. So I don't, I don't believe that. Can I, can I just echo something that Nick said there about how venal some of these journalists were? I, as, as Nick well knows, because I, I actually told him and he put it in his book, I, I wrote uh, secretly for the Irish Republican uh, newspaper Unfublicked. No one knew about that. One day I was at the Irish Embassy. And Alex Marunchek, and God knows why he was there, suddenly came to me and said, I know you're a member of the IRA. Now, of course, I wasn't, by the way, just in case anyone thinks I was. But how did he ever know that? How did that man know that I was in contact in any way with the Sinn Féin newspaper? Uh, It never struck me at the time. But later I thought deeply about that and realized exactly what was going on? I've asked if I was on the famous Mulcair list. I, d- I don't know if I was. But what I do know is that they were probing into the private affairs of lots and lots of people, including other journalists. I don't know if anyone else has written for uh, Anne for Black here, which is a, a sort of interesting story. But Alan, do you think um, the, the Guardian, some of the other sort of serious newspapers in Britain will be sort of indirectly sort of damaged by the fallout from this, from some sort of tighter politician-induced form of regulation? Is there, you know, is this something that actually will have sort of bad or at least unforeseen consequences for the industry broadly? Well, I hope people uh, take a, a sensible view of this. I mean, you know, it, it is a point of fact that this story would never have come out without The Guardian and, and saving Nick's blushes without Nick. You know, it, it is only through Nick's remorseless reporting that this story came out. So, um, you know, there are good journalists and there are bad journalists. So I hope nobody's going to come in uh, in, a, in a general way and do things that would clamp the, the power of people like Nick to write. And I'm, I'm sure they won't. Uh, but uh, you know the, the 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 better journalists in this country, of you know, and that's the vast majority, have now to get together and make sure that they have an influence in whatever is going to come next. Alan, with the sort of demise of the news of the world, we expect News International to put some kind of newspaper out or a Sun on Sunday. Do you think it will be a different kind of product, one that's less? aggressive and intrusive kind of gentler product well i mean that that is the problem for this business model i mean the business model of remorseless week after week exposure of people's lives you know i mean i was trying to think what on earth the news of the world could have put on their front page this week that wouldn't that would pass the yuck test because i think people are now rebelling against that because they they know how these stories were obtained you know they haven't got long to put together a different kind of newspaper that's not going to be about remorselessly flaying people unless there is a fantastic public good and you know some of the news world stories to do with you know for instance ball tampering that was a good story uh, about a, a subject of high public interest so wouldn't it be great if we could get back to a bit more of that 
Uh, Nick, do you think Sunday tabloid journalism has changed forever as a, as a result of this, or you know, will they sort of drift back to the old ways if they get half the chance? I think that they've reined in a lot of the illegal activity because of the Guardian's coverage of the story, and that it's down to the sort of bare minimum. Uh, I think it's important to recognise that most of the journalists who work for the Sunday tabloids would rather not be pressurised by their bosses into doing things which are immoral and which could conceivably land them in prison if they're caught. And I think they will use all this furore to argue hard against any executive in the future who tries to get them to do this sort of thing. So in the specific area of illegal activity, I, I think we're, we, we'll see a really significant change. But then beyond that, there's this great wide grey area of privacy and all the borderlines around privacy are so obscure. There is no procedure which allows journalists to know what should and shouldn't be done. And that's why, actually, if Cameron sets up the wider inquiry into press culture, if he sets it up with a decent remit and some good people on board, we really could start to make some progress, which would help all journalists. I'd like some clearer rules that would allow me to be more confident about what I'm allowed to, to do. And on the other end of the scale, they would be clearer about how to restrain people who are being pressurised into behaving badly. Completely bang on. And that's the answer to this question about, well, does Guido Fawkes count or does the Huffington Post count? Because what you're, uh, what you're doing is governing journalism and journalists, individuals rather than organisations. And you're giving codes of practice and standards that individuals can operate by that has got nothing to do with who you work for, whether or not you make money, whether you publish in paper, and whether you're weekly, daily, monthly, or, or, or digitally and publishing via Twitter. Once you do that, and once you're clear about it, then it doesn't really matter what the penalty that you're going to um, impose is. It can be financial, it can be a licence or whatever. The key thing is the proactive thing of saying, this is what we agree to be true. I think that's all we've got time for. So uh, Alan Rusbridger, Janine Gibson, Roy Greenslade and Nick Davis, who broke the original story. Thank you, and without whom we wouldn't be here having this conversation today. Thank you all very much for a fascinating media talk at the end of an extraordinary week. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.